Welcome to Labor Intensive, a show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishan. On today's show, we have an interview with Alex Silas, Regional Executive Vice President of the National Capital Region for the Public Service Alliance of Canada. But for now, the news. I am recording this segment a few days early because I'm going on vacation. I will be deep in the woods, enjoying some time off with my family. Uh, But I have to cover two big union stories. The first is the deal reached by ILWU, that's the International Longshore Workers Union of Canada. They just reached a tentative deal with the BCMEA, ending their 13-day strike. The deal was reached with the help of a government mediator, but so far there hasn't been much in terms of details about what the agreement states. Lastly, the big news in the U.S. is that SAG-AFTRA is joining the WGA in a historic strike that hasn't been seen since the 1960s. I want to play a clip of Fran Drescher, who is the president of SAG-AFTRA, talking about how their struggle is connected to the broader labor movement. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family. Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in in an emergency. This is a very big deal and it weighed heavy on us. But at some point you have to say no. We're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. I also have a clip of SAG-AFTRA director Duncan Crabtree Ireland responding to the groundbreaking offer regarding their AI likeness. And they're claiming they had a groundbreaking, I'm quoting them, AI proposal which protects performers' digital likeness. So what do you say to that? Well, let me, I mean, Fran may have some things she want to say to that, but let me, let me just take one of the items that you mentioned, and I'm not going to be able, not having seen their press release, I can't respond to every point of it, but this groundbreaking AI proposal that they gave us yesterday, and that groundbreaking AI proposal, they proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. With all that, the summer of strikes are upon us. Things are heating up, so stay tuned. But if you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local bargaining updates or strike support, whatever, feel free to email me at laborintensivepod at gmail.com or message me on social media, and I will include it on next week's show. For the interview, I sat down with Alex Silas of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. There were two main reasons I wanted to talk with him. The first is that we just had a historic PSAC strike with both the Treasury Board and the Union of Taxation Employees walking off the job. You had a wage fight regarding inflation and also some interesting work-from-home language in their agreement that I wanted to get Alex's insight on, but it was also nice to talk with someone who is a leader, even if he humbly won't think of himself that way, of the labor movement. So I I wanted to get his insight on all these issues and and how he became an executive with the PSAC. So with that, here is my interview with Alex Silas. I have with me Alex Silas, who is recently the re-elected regional vice president for the National Capital Region for the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Thank you for being with me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, I guess full disclosure, you have been a patron supporter of my previous podcast and uh, also this podcast. So (laughs) uh, 
this is going to be a friendly interview. I don't know if anyone was expecting me to go hard on uh, a PSAC executive, but uh, that, that's not necessarily going to happen here. You know, gotta gotta maintain that financial relationship, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotta keep that that union money flowing, that union boss money. No, but yeah, uh, proud Patreon supporter. Yeah, full disclosure. Let's put that out there. Now, I initially reached out to you back when the Treasury Board and the taxation employees were on strike, and it was obviously hard to arrange an interview then because you were quite busy. But uh, we, we have followed up on that. But I, and I will have some questions regarding that historic strike. But you are the first union executive I have had on this labor show. So I figured I would ask you, in some sense, a more personal question, which is, how did you go from being an employee at a unionized workplace to becoming an executive with the PSAC? Wow. Um... Yeah, I wasn't expecting to, to, to get into that. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, I uh, uh, a thing I'll often say that my, my friends and, and comrades will, will make fun of me for saying is that I'm just a security guard. Um, and that that is how I feel. And, you know, that's something I sort of say to keep me humble, maybe, but also to keep things in perspective. That, so that's my substantive position as a, as a PSAC member. Uh, I'm a Bank Canada security officer. Um, did that job for, 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 for 10 years um, and was, you know, happy, proud to do that job. It was a good union job, good benefits, um, you know, good salary. I was able to do some really cool things in that career. And it was an opportunity for me to get some, some financial security uh, as someone, you know, who didn't go to university, uh, who dropped out of university, um, you know, and uh, who coming out of high school, like you didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of expectations, uh, or, or of, um, you know, wasn't seen as having a whole lot of potential. Right. So that's why unionized work is so important for, 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 you know, for everyone, regardless of education level, uh, regardless of, um, you know, what sort of privilege you might've had in life, what sort of challenges you might face that everyone can end up contributing to society and have a job where they're treated, with respect, where they they have uh, they're able to earn a fair wage, uh, where they're able to have benefits, um, and all this stuff comes from good union jobs. Um, but yeah, so and it's it's only in the labor movement where I feel like someone like me could go from being just a security guard um, to have the the opportunity that I have now um, to do work that I'm passionate about. Uh, that I really care about and to earn a living off that. Like it feels, you know, I, I never, I never take that for, for granted. Um, it's, it's really a blessing to be able to do this work, but sorry, I, I answered your question sort of more philosophically. You wanted maybe more just like, but how did you work like the, the actual story? Uh, I mean, the, the story is the short version is I got involved. Uh, I was always involved in my local as a steward, uh, but in a particularly tough round of bargaining, I got involved in mobilization uh, that sort of built a stronger relationship with the, um, the PSAC regional office. Uh, from there, I went to a national convention, got involved in the Young Workers Committee, um, and I just really committed myself to um, to this work. And and you know, I, I felt that I had things I could contribute to this movement, uh, and I had the, the great fortune to have a lot of opportunities uh, to connect with a lot of great people who helped me along the way, um, and uh, and who who've seen that potential in me. And and um, yeah, it, it's humbling. I mean, so this is my my second term now. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was actually acclaimed, which is, um, pretty humbling. Uh, so I started in the pandemic. That was when I first took office as REVP. Uh, and then once we had our postponed convention, after I had been in the job for a year in interim, I was acclaimed into it. And then again, uh, two years later, uh, I was acclaimed once again. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's definitely a sign that hopefully people feel that I'm doing something right. And, um, Yeah. It's, it's humbling for sure. I have to ask a question uh, as well, because you are very active in connecting labor issues to everything from climate, uh, climate to discrimination. So, yeah. you know, you were in the streets protesting the convoy when that showed up in Ottawa. And uh, yeah. you were recently in the streets defending uh, schools against attacks on LGBTQ uh, students. And yeah. I, I wanted to bring this up because you don't often see union leaders doing that kind of direct work, you know, they might show up at a pride parade or, you know, send out supportive tweets, which are, you know, good. But 
There's yeah. a difference between that and like being in the street. So I wonder, uh, what do you see as uh, being important about doing that work? And do you have any words of, say, encouragement for other union leaders to be that involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I never got into this thinking of myself as a politician. Um, I really do think of myself as an organizer and an activist. And that's that's the mentality that I try to bring to, to my role. Um, and being a union executive, um, which is, you know, another <laughs> another title that I'm not the most comfortable with. But yeah, being in a, in a full time elected position in a union, being a union executive comes with certain protections and certain privileges where you're able to uh, you're, you're able to put yourself out there uh, uh, and take certain risks that others may not be able to. Um, so I think it's important um, that we, we, you know, when we express our solidarity um, with different struggles, whether that's a climate justice struggle, the struggle for reconciliation, the struggle uh, for racial justice, when we express our solidarity with marginalized groups like the 2SLGBTQ plus community, that solidarity has to go beyond words and into action and, and into physically being boots on the ground. Um, in those struggles. Uh, I also think it's really important for um, for labor uh, to be involved in these struggles because of what we can bring to them, right? Because of the resources that labor has, uh, the organizing experience that labor has, um, we can contribute meaningfully to these struggles um, in ways that are much more tangible than, you know, putting a tweet out or, or having a, a fancy statement out. Um, so yeah, we, we, we got to be on the ground and, you know, it's one of the it's never been something that I've it's always been part of my union activism and why I do this right like from defending workers in the local in the workplace to you know participating in in, in campaigns to raise minimum wage um, to doing the work of reconciliation to engaging in the struggle for climate justice. I like th there's no these aren't different things for me right like I've always felt that the labor movement um, has has been um, and will always be. I feel the, the the primary vehicle for any sort of progressive change in our society, right? And if you look back, any big progressive change that we've had, the labor movement has been right there and needs to be right there for that to get moved forward. So I think there's a responsibility there, as well as an opportunity. Um, and I think you know all, all these things are connected. These are whether it's a health and safety issue in the workplace. Um, or whether it's uh, trans kids being targeted by hate groups. Um, there's a connection there because it's, it's about common people, working people, banding together to fight back against those that would try to keep us down and oppress us. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I wanted to point that out mainly because I, I agree with the, that sentiment in terms of everything being connected. And uh, mm. it is true that, like, the resources are in the union. You know, I, I think that a lot of people, I mean, like, there are things that you could criticize about various aspects of the labor movement. Uh, you know, they, they haven't been perfect on every issue, but the fact is, is like they're there and we need, they're, they're the best tool, I guess, available for people who care about these issues to actually mobilize, organize and like do some of this stuff. So I, I, I do wish that there was a little bit more of like, uh, that involvement on the ground that, that I see you doing. So, uh, I did want to say, I appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, tying it back to, to the first question too, it's, it's also, it's, it's an honor to be able to do this. Right. Um, but to, to your tool analogy, like, I think, um, I think you're right, but I think also like being self-reflective, the labor movement, self-critical, even like it's, it's the, maybe the best tool that we have or a very important tool we have, we have, but it's a tool that needs to be sharpened, that needs to be kept sharp. Um, and a toolbox that needs to be, uh, expanded on so that we have more tools in the box, you know? I don't know if I'm getting lost in this analogy no, I, now, but you, you know what I mean. To extend that analogy, like, I do hope that this show can be a kind of, like, tool sharpener to some degree, you know? Not only yeah. try to build the community, but also, like, uh, I don't want it to just be a sort of, like, uh, you know, just spouting the, the same things over and over again uh, about what unions are doing, but, like, how can we improve? How can we build this thing to to do more and achieve more, you know? Yeah. Now that we're done, some of the more personal questions that I wanted to ask you, <laughs> we could talk about the historic strike that occurred back in May. And I know yeah. that there are things that you probably can't divulge or even strategically you wouldn't want to divulge, 
But I am curious what the lead up to the strike was like, even like maybe on an emotional level. Like what what were uh, you feeling and what were your member feel members feeling leading up to that strike? Wow. Um, yeah. So the strike started April 19th um, and for the Treasury Board tables ended May 1st and for the CRA workers ended May 3rd, um, May 3rd, late into the night. So May 4th. Um, what did it feel going in? Um, I think so to, to put this in context, context a bit. So it's it's you know, you mentioned it's, it's a historic strike. It, it is, you know, the last largest strike in the history of Canada was the PSAC 1991 general strike. Um, this strike has beat that record. So the 2023 PSAC general strike is the largest strike in Canadian history. Um, I'm the regional vice president responsible for PSAC in the NCR, where we have the highest density of PSAC members um, across the country, but especially when it comes to the federal government. Um, so about a third of the 100,000 workers who were on strike were right here in Ottawa Gatineau. So I can say that for our for our whole regional team, um, certainly for myself and, and you know for all the the, the regional staff, uh, all our regional activists, all our local leaders, um, it was the scope of it all was daunting, you know, and uh, nobody nobody is really. I mean, even if we have some some really exceptional organizers, um, both in our membership and in our staff. Uh, but nobody really is prepared for the scope of this level of strike because nobody's done it before. Like it's the biggest ever. So nobody's ever done this before, uh, especially since the last one that would rival it is 30 years ago. So um, I think there was a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, of, of, of feelings about, you know, trying to wrap our head around logistically how to pull something like this off um and then also it's hard to visualize you know you 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 talk about um 40 to fifty thousand workers out on strike in two cities uh which you know often the national capital region ottawa gatineau you know often will feel like you know the one one big city uh we're very close to our, our siblings in, in gatineau um but the, like you think of that number and in your head it's just a number but when when you see it in real life it's it's uh it's something you you can't really be prepared for i don't know it's like i i think there was a lot of feelings there was a lot of um of uh, feeling intimidating feeling daunted by it feeling nervous about about it uh like right before that go like on that that tuesday uh when we said we were going to go like at midnight um and uh but also some excitement and uh also some i don't know some pretty big feelings of responsibility like for myself like in the position that i'm not, that i'm in uh and i've been through strikes before um and I've, I've supported members through strikes before and been responsible for those for those members in that strike and it always weighs on your shoulder um you know and and that doesn't change just because it's you know, a hundred thousand workers, like it, it, it weighs on you and you, cause you care about those people that you're, that you're asking to go out on strike. Um, so yeah, lots of big feelings. Yeah. I, I think people need to, I guess, uh, internalize a bit more this idea of responsibility. Uh, like I felt like that was missed as well during the QP or potential QP strike. Cause it didn't end up uh, becoming a strike when they were protesting against Doug Ford's policy to to force them back to work. They walked and, off the job. Yeah. So but, that's the, <laughs> right. wildcatted. Like that's. I mean, let's give them their flowers. Like they. No, they like, I, I just know because they were calling it a protest as opposed to a strike yes, for legal right, reasons. Yeah. For legal purposes, yeah. it wasn't a strike. <laughs> but like the, the the thing that I wanted to highlight there was that like in the end when they went back to the table and I remember there was a lot of like public sort of like especially by people on the left who were a little bit yeah. disappointed that that happened and like my thing is like you know as well as someone who has been a, a part of a union that almost went on strike back when I was a, a TA at Western, that, like, it's constantly weighing on your mind that, like, sure, at the back of the head, like, back of your head, you're going, yeah, I really, we want more, we can do this, you know, and and you're you're prepared to go on strike, but then you're like, but, like, all these people are now depending on, you know, our ability to organize and mobilize. And that responsibility, like, 
hangs on you because you the reason why you get involved in this in the first place is because you care about people and you want a better workplace and so you don't want it to fail on people as well right and i think people just sort of like don't appreciate that and so they get mad when say it didn't go as far as maybe they expected you know yeah yeah this is a great question thanks for asking that um because yeah this is something that is both um frustrating kind of but also kind of like oh like i i just i i wish folks could understand more like there, there's often right a, a criticisms of, of unions and of labors that like we're not you know we're not present enough right going back to, to what you were first saying and that is true like you know um you, you sort of said i forgot how you said it but it's it's not it's rare to see you know a labor leader like on the street in these struggles and you know i'll i'll mention that at that that broadview uh, uh counter protest where we were drowning out the hate and defending trans kids uh brother larry russo was right there with me uh and there was other labor leaders too that were there but um yeah i think there's this this expectation that comes from a misunderstanding of unions that you know unions should somehow and, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about unions being the primary vehicle for progressive change. I fully believe that. But in order to achieve that change, you have to do it the right way. And you have to do it in a way that brings a lot that brings along your members, uh, that is realistic about the capacity you have. And that is realistic to, to, to your point, to your question about the responsibility that unions have. Um, because unions as much as unions care about pushing forward these social justice and progressive ideals. And we are doing that. And believe me, we're also doing that without any, um, without being free of backlash. Like there's backlash from members, as you well know, when we do that, there's backlash from the media. When we do that, there's backlash from the right wing. When we, when we do that, but we do it anyway, because we do believe that if we're, if our movement is based on, justice uh, and respect and fairness we have to uphold those values and uphold that solidarity when it applies to everything but unions have a very real concrete responsibility to the workers that are organized within that union to defend their interests and to fight for their interests so when you know you see a strike whether it's a, an education worker strike whether it's whether it's a federal government worker strike and then the strike ends and people in the comment sections, let's call it, you know, whether it's literally like social media comment sections or, you know, just kind of in person, like you, you, you're commenting on it, but you weren't part of it. You weren't there. You weren't on strike with these workers who every day were going without salary, who was, who were making that sacrifice, who were taking on their employer, which is a hard thing to do. It's an intimidating thing to do. And you're sort of Monday morning quarterbacking it after the fact. It's like, oh, that we didn't achieve enough or we should have fought for that and it ignores the facts that like you're trying to put these huge goals of the progressive movement on the backs not of unions but of the of union members those people who are out on strike you know who are education workers who are federal government workers who are you know working people who, whose main priority is taking care of their families right is 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 having a a, a career is, is being able to earn a living and so um it's it's a bit um it's 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 a bit of a misunderstanding about uh the, the responsibility that unions have and like you know i'll i'll share a, an example that that always you know makes me laugh but also makes me sigh like i remember during uh all the buildup of the qpo spcu uh wildcat strike or wildcat protest legal reasons um, uh, and you know, there was real conversations happening about a potential general strike in Ontario, uh, at the OFL, this, these, we were having real meetings about this. This was a, a real potential that could have happened. Uh, but of course, as we all know, uh, those education workers, they, uh, they won, uh, they made Ford flinch. Uh, he blinked first and repealed his own bill, uh, which is, you know, uh, a real example of the, 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 the tangible power that workers have when we unite collectively. Um, but I remember seeing when that ended, yeah, people were disappointed that a general strike didn't kick off. Uh, and, you know, I remember seeing a tweet that, you know, one of the demands of the general strike should be to, 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 to stop urban sprawl. It's like, it's like, yeah, like, like, cool. Yeah. We can talk about city planning. We can talk about, you know, 
uh, the benefits of creating neighborhoods versus urban sprawl. And we can talk about develop, developer influence. Like all these things are, are things that I care about and they're things that are, you know, uh, that need to be fixed. But it's like, let's put that problem on the back of these education workers who, let's remember, are on strike because they're only making $39,000 a year. You know what I mean? And like, let's let's put our sort of lofty, somewhat progressive goals on on the backs of these workers. And it's like, it, it, there needs to be a better understanding of the realities of the labor movement. Um, but it needs to go both ways too. The labor movement also needs to uh, be more active in 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 those struggles um, to be able to be better understood by being in those spaces. Like climate is a real good example of that too. Um, you know, if, if a, a thing that I'll tell the union members um, who are, you know, questioning labor's involvement or their union's involvement in the climate justice movement is that if we're not involved in this in this struggle, who's going to be the party to guarantee that the jobs that are happening in this that are going to be created in the green energy economy, that those are good union jobs, that the, the, the green uh, energy future isn't. Uh, directed by corporate interests and it is, you know, to the benefit of working people, like we need to be in those struggles so that that happens. I, I do think like it is, it is a balancing act though too, right? Cause like, I, I don't mm. want to leave the impression that like people shouldn't push unions to go farther. Right. But it, it is a sense yeah. of just like, re, like, again, a sort of like more realistic assessment because like, I worry about the, uh, of the people who get angry that they didn't go far enough. There's like this potential for burnout for them. Then, that like self perpetuates, you know, because of course, like they're not, they're not going to do everything like the urban sprawl example that you gave, right? Like there is limits to what uh, that kind of general strike could do at that moment, you know? And I think being realistic about that is important, but, but yes, I do think we need to push unions occasionally, you know? Absolutely. No, I, I agree with that. And, and um, uh, it, yeah, I think unions definitely need to be to be pushed. Um, I think union members need to push their own unions. Um, but yeah, I think real like real coalitions are, are, are built when um, there's like a real collaboration there, real solidarity there, you know. Um, and and we've seen that with the work we've been doing at PSAC NCR and trying to build these real uh, coalition relationships with progressive community organizations. Um, so that there's mutual support there so that, you know, and, and this has happened where like, you know, uh, we'll have a picket line and horizon Ottawa will come join our picket line. Um, cause that, that's solidarity. Right. And then, you know, um, when there's a campaign on, on, on housing or on another municipal issue, there's a better understanding amongst the members of the union, why this is important, why this relates to their lives, uh, and why this organization is doing this work and let's support them too. Yeah, I mean, like, I was always uh, telling my members, like, that's why we got to show up uh, when the faculty was, uh, you know, bargaining as well, you know, show up right. for them and they'll start showing up for us. You know, it's a build, build those uh, communities. And it's not about being like uh, quid pro quo about it or being like transactional about it. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> not about like we, we get something from you and so we'll give you something. It's not about that. It's just about like real relationship building like that's one of the things you you mentioned earlier like counter protesting against the convoy like um for me like that was you know probably the biggest organizing um undertaking that i've ever done in my life like to that point right um it was massive like it was like there, there's never been anything really like that that's happened in ottawa uh and so a lot of us were trying to trying our best to to, to apply ourselves to rise to that moment and 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 um do the work that was needed in that moment to keep our community safe um and to really be a counter to the convoy like that was our that was our our, our goal right was to put a message out there that countered what the convoy was spreading um and also to to organize um uh actions that would let people show their solidarity with the community show that they were in opposition to the message that the convoy was spreading uh and do it in a safe way and in a way that we're keeping our each other safe um but the way we did that was by real relationship building real coalition building real finding of common ground um and 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 it, it, it's a powerful thing um but you have to do the work it doesn't happen 
because you wrote like a particularly pointed tweet. It doesn't it doesn't happen because you happen to make like the right argument on Twitter about why this thing and that thing. And like it, it happens because you do the work um, of organizing and of coalition building. I have one more question about the strike itself before we uh, move on to some more of the, the specifics. But like in terms of like leading into it, like did, did everything go as planned or or were there like surprises that were sort of like unexpected uh through throughout the strike process <laughs> yeah I, I mean did everything go as planned no uh absolutely not uh i mean i think uh because again like how do you plan for something like this you know um there were logistical challenges um you know, not not having porta potties uh, was one. You know, like this is an example. There was stuff like that that needed to be solved. Um, I mean, like you know, I, I remember like uh, on one particular day, you know, transitioning from like leading chance to a megaphone to like, oh no, there's no more toilet paper, and they'd be like, all right, well, I'm gonna run over to the grocery store and get some toilet paper for everybody. Um, things like that, you know, things that are are. Our, our logistics, but that are important. Um, and then, you know, other things too, like we're, we're sort of at this, this point in the labor movement where we're, we're really trying to modernize and it's important that we do it. Like, and it's, it's, you know, long overdue in a lot of ways too. Um, where we're trying to modernize the technology we use. Right. So for example, one thing we did was um, we had a, a barcode that people were emailed uh, prior to the strike that they used to scan in to like scan in and scan out to do the four hour shift on the picket line, uh, which made things a lot, a lot easier, reduced like the, the paper clutter and, and very simple way to scan in for the people who received the email and had that barcode. But for the, the thousands of others who, you know, because we didn't have their personal email or, um, you know, they didn't get the email or it ended up in their spam or whatever happened, um, there, there was a longer process uh, that, that that involved more steps and more waiting uh, for them. So, you know, things like that didn't go quite to plan. And now that we've, you know, we've built up our list quite a bit from the strike, we're able to learn from that. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, other things. I mean, and it, one thing that, you know, went exceedingly well to plan, though, um, and honestly, like, I, I hesitate to even say, to plan because it was definitely the plan. It was the goal, but um, members really showed up. And, and a lot of them, I, I credit the members themselves for, because a lot, like we did a lot of organizing and we did, we did our best to, to, to engage with members, to reach out to members, to, me to make sure members were getting information about the strike. Um, but that didn't change the fact that with a group this large, there were a lot of workers in the federal public service who who were not receiving emails from from their union because we didn't have their email. Um, you know, quick segue to say how important list building is. List building is is should be the number one priority for for any union organizer. Um, it's literally the first step to being able to do anything from there. Um, but you know, they just did the right thing. Um, so that that was. Um, I don't want to say it was a surprise, but it was uh, a, a really um, encouraging thing to see, an inspiring thing to see that, you know, um, how many workers in the federal public service did the right thing, supported their bargaining team, supported each other, uh, and came out on the picket line on day one. And I think that was something that no one could really be ready for, because again, no one's done a strike on this on this scale before and i think definitely was a surprise for the employer i don't think that was something that um the federal government or treasury board was expecting would happen now you could correct me if i'm wrong on this but it seems the two main issues at least in terms of the government's hesitation in accepting a, a deal uh, or, or providing a better agreement earlier on were wages being above inflation and also workers trying to get some work from home policy. Now, I first want to touch on the work from home policy because I've seen people discuss this online uh, and it has become unclear to me, but you, I guess, are a <laughs> PSAC executive. So what, what exactly did they win on that front? 
the, I would agree those are the two main priorities. I think fair wages, uh, wages that keep up with the increase in cost of living was the priority. Remote work language was another one. Um, but I do want to mention there was other things like improving uh, anti-racism training in the federal public service. That was an important priority. We've seen so much racism happen in the federal government uh, that have led to things like the black class action. Um, and then, you know, and that's it's not things that have happened in the past. It's also things that, you know, happen to this day, like what happened uh, at Treasury Board Secretariat with workers who were brought on to work on the black mental health fund fund project and then experienced racism, reported it, and then were let go from the position that we're in, which is, you know, um, shocking and, 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 and gross. Um, and then other things like leave for indigenous practices, which, which has been important uh, to a lot of our members, um, you know, workers in the federal public service who are indigenous, uh, who can now access leave um, to be able to, um, to, to engage in indigenous practices and, and, have, and have that understood and reflected in the collective agreement um, as a as a uh, 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 as a legitimate practice um, that's enshrined in their collective agreement that they can take leave for, I think that's a significant thing too. Um, but to answer your question about remote work, what was gained is there is now a a there's language as a memorandum of understanding which is in the collective agreement for the life of this collective agreement. It's like an it's an uh, an appendix to it. Um, where if, uh, well, first of all, the, the biggest thing it stops is a sort of one size fits all policy on remote work, because now each worker in the federal public service has the right to request their own remote work, hybrid work arrangement to their manager. Um, the manager, uh, and this is, you know, one of our, our big arguments with the, the employer uh, during bargaining and during the strike was that, you know, Mona Fortier, President of Treasury Board, had that line that uh, this is a manager right. Um, well, everything, nearly everything in the collective agreement is a manager right. It's just an agreement on how this is going to work, uh, how these, these, the, how it's going to be implemented, how, what rights that the worker has to, 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 to have that policy implemented in a fair way. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a manager right. Um, so the manager receives the request. Um, if the manager denies the request, uh, they have to provide reasons in writing for why that request is being denied. Um, and then the employee has, if, if they disagree with the, uh, the manager's decision, they have the opportunity to escalate it up uh, to another level, to, to, to the director, essentially. Um, and now, is that everything we wanted? No, but it, it's, it's, it's a step forward. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that's how this works on wages, too. We didn't get everything we wanted. We didn't get everything that we deserve, that workers in the federal public service uh, or that workers across the country deserve in terms of a standard for fair wages. Um, but when you compare the gains made in the federal public service bargaining um, to uh, economic increases that we've seen over the last years and years across the public service at any level, um, you know, and it's especially true here in Ontario with, with uh, Bill 124, um, the economic increase that we got is we did raise the standard from where it was in terms of what public service workers could expect. So I think that was important to, to, to raise that standard. Um, and we got to keep pushing and keep organizing and keep building capacity so that we're in a better position next time to push for even more. And it's the same for remote work. I mean, I think, you know, in the immediate, the sort of knee jerk reaction was like, Oh, this isn't what you you were fighting for. This isn't what you you said you were going to get or you were trying to get. And again, I don't dispute that at all. That's true. But it is a step forward. And we've seen sort of now that there's been time. We've seen retrospectives and sort of analyses and studies of like you know a lot of real educated labor folks who 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 can analyze this better than I can, but who who show that this is you know th this is a significant step forward in creating a new standard for normalizing remote work. Um, which not only, and let's, let's, let's remember, this is not about people, you know, being able to work in their pajamas. Like that's a, that, that's a real, you know, harmful, uh, narrative that's been put out there by the employer and by the, by the, by the right, by conservatives, uh, by people who are anti-worker and who are anti-public service. This is about, uh, workers period, not just in the federal public service, being able to achieve a better work-life balance, um, work from home is a, is, is a feminist issue as well. Uh, when so many, uh, 
women are, are still in the majority of most households responsible for childcare and for, for, for family care in general. Uh, and when we're in a care crisis, a childcare crisis, uh, an elder care crisis, um, being able to have that work-life balance um, is a huge, uh, a huge advantage to, to, to so many uh, who, who have to do care work in their homes. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a it's a step forward. Now it's a memorandum of understanding that will go along with this collective agreement. But obviously, like that, that sets a precedent now, like in the next round of bargaining. This will have been the practice in the federal government uh, for by the time we start the next round of bargaining, let's say two to three years at that point. This will be the new normal for two to three years. It will already be a memorandum of, of understanding the goal in the next round. Uh, will be to to have it in the collective agreement and to keep building on those gains. Good collective agreements are built over a long time. Like I, I wish we lived in the kind of society where um, we could, you know, snap our fingers and get everything that working people deserve right off the bat. But unfortunately, we're up against some some really powerful forces who are doing everything they can to stop that from happening. And if we want to have uh, a world where workers have more influence and are able to achieve bigger gains, uh, stronger gains, and and, and more um, take longer leaps. You know, we got to build that world, right? We 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 got we got to get organized and we got to start having regular people, not just labor activists like me and you start to understand themselves as workers in the context of this economy, in the context of the society, and start understanding the collective power that we have when we can all uh, unite that strength collectively. Sorry, your question was on remote work language. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the funny thing uh, in what you said there, though, was like the pajamas thing, like, let people yeah. wear pajamas. Like, uh, <laughs> right. I, 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 like at the end of the day, it's like, why is this a smear? Like, let people uh, do what they want, you know? Yeah, and but but that's the that's the sort of the, the the image people have in their mind, right? And that's what the employer used to get the public, um, not and let's remember though, like as much as you know, like the right wants to say this, the employer wants to say this. The majority of the public was on the side of PSAC members during the strike. There's study after study that that that, that showed that. Um, it might have been, you know, a tight, it might have been like, you know, uh, there, there, there was some division there, but I think a lot of that comes from the misinformation. And that's just one of the images uh, that gets put out there about what a federal public service worker is and, 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 and does. Um, and it's really harmful to this notion that we can have a society that cares for people. We can have a society uh, where institutions are created to serve the public. That's what the public service is institutions are created to provide services to the public and you need workers to perform those services to provide those services and those workers come from that society too They're like our our taxpaying canadians uh who work hard uh who, who you know uh who, who face struggles who, who face challenges uh who love their families who, who love the work that they do and the public that they serve um, and it, it's th this sort of like anti-public service worker sentiment that we see so often on the right is really harmful just to the basic idea that, that we can have a society that cares for one another. Um, and, you know, it's um, it, it, it's really unfortunate, but I think we, we got to keep working to dispel that. I have like one uh, last thing about the uh, work from home policy, which is like it, in terms of like what you spelled out there, like can members grieve that like how like like maybe i guess if like some of the steps like aren't met like if they don't explain in writing uh why you're being say denied the, the ability like what what aspects of it can be grieved i guess by members it, it can be grieved internally so what what we what it where it stops short is that a normal grievance right grieved at the first level second level, third level, that's depending how, on your collective agreement, how many levels you have. But at all those levels, it's the employer sitting across from the union trying to come to a mutual understanding. Um, and if they don't, at every one of those steps, then it goes to an arbit to arbitration where an arbitrator makes the final ruling. That's where this stops shorts. 
So this this can still be grieved uh, internally. We're stopped short. Sorry, this can still be grieved internally, but it sort of stops at that top employer level and it can't go to arbitration. So again, this is one of the things that we'll have to push to improve next time. But it does create, you know, and we, we encourage members to 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 file those grievances, um, even if you feel that your your director is just going to support what your manager said, which could happen. Like, I'm not I'm not going to be naive about that. Uh, directors will more often than not um, support the manager's decision is my hunch. Right. Just based on how employer structure works. Um, but uh, I still think it's, it's important to file that grievance so that there's a record of it. So that it still puts the employer on notice that they have to produce a reason why they're saying that you you there's it will be you know impossible for you to do your job from telework um, or why it's detrimental or why there's a reason why you can't do your job from from work from home and it then you know creates a, a record of all those instances where there were uh, decisions that were that were refused. Um, what we were seeing before this was things like. Treasury board president um, for, I think, you know, political reasons, making big sweeping statements that everybody's back in the office as of this date, you know, which was a, a one size, a one size fits solution that uh, wasn't fair to everyone. First of all, uh, wasn't well thought out, had a lot of gaps in it. Uh, and we saw that just from the fact that it was delayed and, and you know, the, the treasury board had to sort of do a 180 on that and turn around on it. Um, and, that the offices weren't ready for. Um, so it stops that sort of thing from happening. And another thing we were hearing of on the ground in the workplaces from members is that they felt that their, their managers were, um, um, were making favoritism part of their, their decisions on telework, right? Picking favorites about who got to get a work from home arrangement and who didn't. Um, and of course, you know, favoritism is like a light way of, of saying that, but, uh, you know, we also heard from other members that they, they felt that it, it rose to the level of they felt discriminated against for not getting their telework arrangement uh, approved when a colleague of theirs in similar uh, circumstances did. Um, so it stops those things from happening, which, again, as much as it's not everything we wanted to get uh, and we'll have to keep pushing to improve it, those sorts of changes are, are tangible and make a real difference in people, people's lives. And that's, that, that's, that's something I'm proud of, you know, uh, and that, um, that I think is a gain, uh, for workers in the federal public service right now who are covered by this collective agreement, but also in normalizing, uh, work from home. On the issue of wages, uh, I, mm -hmm. we sort of like already discussed, uh, sort of like, uh, you know, people getting frustrated of, of it, it didn't go as far as you want, but like, of course, like, very rarely when you put out your top line of what you expect for wages uh, is the employer ever going to give you that top line, you know, but you put yep. it out there. Uh, now, I, I guess, uh, of course, like specifics might be difficult, but I am I am curious, uh, uh, maybe it's sort of like going through the process of like when the bargaining team sort of decides like this is the point where we're going to bring this back to our, our members as a tentative agreement, like what... Mm -hmm what that decision making like entails, like, you know, where they go, you know, this is as far as we're going to take it or whether they feel that they, they've got what they wanted. I think a, a lot of it comes down to, you know, do we feel uh, that we got the best deal that that was available? Do we feel like um, this is an expression I use a lot, but do we feel that we squeezed every last drop of juice out of that lemon? Right. Do we feel like we got everything? We didn't leave anything on the table. We left no stones unturned. We we may not be um, overjoyed with this agreement. Um, we may not have gotten everything we wanted, but we believe that after all the work we've done, this is the best deal that was reachable in this round. I think that's more often than not um, the mindset and then the sort of um, the, the resolution that um, the bargaining team members uh, end up coming around to uh, in the final hours of bargaining. And especially in, in, in bargaining like this, that ends up in a strike um, that, you know, in those final moments, do you firmly believe this is the best we could have gotten? And, you know, in this case, our bargaining team members felt that it was. And, you know, I, I support them in that decision and agree with them. Um, you also have to balance out, especially, especially when you're in a strike, um, 
you have to balance out that these these members are on strike, right? They're 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 going without wages. Um, they are again, they're taking on their employer. They're making sacrifice, um, and the longer that strike goes, the larger the sacrifice is. And they trust you. They trust you as a union leader. They trust you as a bargaining team member. They trust you to make decisions that are in their best interests um, about what is achievable and what is possible and what is what is the best result that we're going to get for all involved. And you you have to put your ego aside. Often you have to put your um, you know your your your, your like your idea of what you could have dreamed of, of everything that you want to accomplish, of how hard you want to just be like, F the employer, I'm going to keep fighting in on this. Um, and I'm going to fight them, you know, for as long as it takes. And you have to think of, and there's activists on the lines who are ready to do that too. And we had members who were like, we'll stay out forever if we need to. You know what I mean? Like there, there are those, those diehard activists. We love them. Um, but you got to think about, you know, the rank and file worker too. Um, who's again doing the right thing, but also very scared, uh, very stressed, um, and and um, just wants this to be over with a net positive uh, resolution, and 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 that's what we got. And I think it's 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 um, it's, it's a tremendous responsibility and, and brain exercise uh, and and weight that's put on bargaining team members in those final moments when they have to make that decision. Um, but like I said, I, I definitely support them and think they made the right decision about. The fact that we we squeezed every every last drop of juice out of that lemon. Another thing I'll say to this, though, and this is you know conversations that I've had with a lot of members in the you know in in the post strike uh, uh, time um, that if we get organized and start applying pressure to the employer much earlier on in the process, like in throughout bargaining, like as we're building up, we organize rallies, you know, come support your bargaining team, come support these bargaining demands, come put pressure on the employer and we'll do it, you know, say we'll do it on the lunch hour and we'll get like two, 300 members out to a rally and be like, wow, this is great. There's, you know, a, a few hundred people here. Um, but if we got two to 3000 members out at those rallies, the employer would start feeling the heat much earlier on and we would be in a better position at the bargaining table if it came to a strike. We might have been able to avoid the strike altogether. Um, but if it came to a strike, we would have started from a better position than when we started here. Uh, because even though we did a lot of really great mobilizing work in the lead up to the strike, I don't think the employer, the federal government started feeling the heat in the way that they, they really needed to be feeling the heat because they didn't really start bargaining uh, meaningfully until the strike started. So, you know, uh, you, you don't start mobilizing when a strike is called. You, you don't start, you know, putting pressure on the employer when a strike is called. Um, you don't even start getting ready for a strike until a strike is called or until a strike mandate is achieved. You do all that much earlier on uh, in the buildup, and then you get a better position at the bargaining table, and you're able to better achieve uh, more goals, more gains. I have one uh, last question before we... Uh have more like wrap-up questions but like and and it might seem a little bit random which is that uh, i had covered because with this podcast i've been doing like brief little news segments at the beginning and i had covered the uh strike mandate by the international development research center and i believe i believe they are in the national are considered in the national capital region okay yeah yeah so i'm just curious because like the strike mandate was sort of covered by uh, you know sporadically through some news sources but like i haven't heard a single thing about it since that strike mandate vote so it's like i have you here is there any update on that um yeah no it's it's thanks for bringing that up yeah it did so that is a a, an ncr local but they're international as the name would suggest um and one thing i'll say just real quick is you know i I really got to give them flowers and, and and kudos for um, the organizing the work they did at the local and how effectively they've been able to engage their members. Um, and I promise I'll get around to answering your question. But it's been so, like one of the examples, you know, because they're international and because they have workers in, in satellite offices, uh, regional offices, they call them, across the across the, the world, um, you know, they've been able to still keep those members engaged, 
Um, at one time, they did a, a mobilization world, world tour, which started in India and then made its way around to Canada across all the different time zones, um, where this was all virtual, of course, but it sort of ended in this big, um, like, it, was, it almost felt like a break room rally because there were so many people in the break room, uh, but just where they were all together and then they got a bargaining update from the negotiator uh, and we were able to, you know, take a picture of everyone in person with all the people who were, you know, uh, uh, joining virtually from across the world. Um, and they've really kept their members engaged um, through challenging circumstances, also facing an employer that is not necessarily union friendly because it's not a, uh, it's only been a unionized workplace since 2015. Um, so it's, it's, it's been tough to just even get the employer to ba understand basic things like the collective agreement is not a suggestion, things like that. So kudos to them. It's a really strong local. And, you know, uh, when this is the first time they've been in a strike mandate and because they did that work of organizing and member engagement, um, not only did they end up with a really sh strong positive strike mandate, uh, but the attendance, um, at the sessions they had around 85 percent of their members voting and they ended up with um 92 92 yeah i think it was, I think it was a 92 93 percent strike mandate um what i'm what what, what what i've sort of come around to, to to understanding is like yes like the positive strike mandate's important but i think what's most important there is the turnout number is the fact that a high majority of members were part of that decisions and, and, and bought into that decision, understood why that was important and will be, um, you know, we'll, we'll take ownership of that decision they made. That's really significant. Um, but, and, and I think it's created movement at the bargaining table. Um, and shortly after announcing the strike mandate, uh, we had new dates at the table. We didn't reach a deal there. Uh, the first day was frustrating. Uh, I can share that. Not much movement happened. But on the second day, we start we started to see some um, some potential daylight and some things starting to shake loose. Uh, so we are uh, we're back at the table uh, tomorrow, actually, uh, July eighth, uh, and uh, we are still in a strike mandate. So the members are ready to take a strike action if need be. But I think just the engagement work they've done. Um, the capacity that they've built around this strike mandate so that it's 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 a very concrete strike mandate. It is not at all a straw mandate um, has again, it's it's improved our position at the bargaining table and it's forced the employer to take these workers and their demands more seriously. So we hope for some movement when we're back at the table tomorrow. Awesome. And maybe I'll, I'll check in with you as uh, as this goes, because uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting how uh, I mean, because it's not a, a tiny and it's like, it, you know, it's got several hundred members, but like these these things like sometimes just get missed in the barrage of other news stories. So uh, this is the the labor podcast. So I'm, I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time on those stories. Now, before we uh, wrap up, I am, uh, you know, trying to do some proactive stuff. So uh, is there any upcoming PSAC stuff that uh, people can get involved with? And uh, also, is there any closing words of advice for people in the labor movement? Wow. Um, PSAC things coming up that folks can get involved with. Well, you know, if a strike pops off at IDRC, uh, please come support us on our picket lines. Um, you know, and we're here in the National Capital Region, we're also uh, at bargaining impasse for a few of our units on the Hill. Um, so we'll see how things go there. Um, we uh, obviously are organizing around Capital Pride uh, coming up uh, in Ottawa. We do Pride in August, uh, so that's August 26th. Uh, so come check us out there. Um, and then there's Labor Day, uh, obviously coming up in September. Uh, we intend to have a presence here in the NCR and, and to, uh, to hopefully, uh, uh, I haven't talked to our political action committee yet about what our, our message is gonna be, but um, we'll, we'll be, We'll be doing something more than just being in a parade, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, you know, like su support striking workers. Like I'll, I'll give this shout out for people in Ottawa uh, that, you know, they're not PSAC members, but uh, you should definitely go support them. Uh, Hydro Ottawa uh, workers are on strike, have been on strike since last Wednesday. Uh, members of IBEW 636. Um, they have picket lines uh, across uh, across Ottawa. Um, I know uh, one of the bigger ones is at the uh, Hydro Ottawa head office on Hunt Club. Um, so, you know, go uh, support their picket lines. Uh, go join them there. 
and um, advice that I would have. Um, do do the work. Uh, do the work. Be true to yourself. Believe in, in, in believe in yourself. Believe in what you care about. And um, yeah, do the work. I'm not I'm not sure to what advice I could give, but uh, <laughs> you know, be yourself. Do good things. Be kind. Treat people well. Uh, collaborate. Build coalitions and organize and do the work. Do the do the work is great. Do the work, yeah. <laughs> thanks for speaking with me, Oz. Hey, thanks for having me on, bro. Thanks again to Alex. You can follow him on Twitter at Alex Silas PSAC. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash laborintensive. If you become a member, you can have access to the patron-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People. You might know Eric from being a co-host of Big Shiny Takes, which is also a part of the Harbinger Media Network. I just released the July episode recently, which is Chapter 7 of Shakedown by Ezra Levant. Next month, we will be releasing our final episode for that book, so stay tuned. And if you become a patron, you will have access to all the back episodes. If that interests you, go check it out. I will have some interesting life news coming up and could use some extra income. I will probably have more to say in the future episodes about this, but yes, every little bit helps me out a lot. So please consider becoming a patron. And with that, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode.